welcome to Galaxy Brains. The weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. Yo, this beat works for me to speak words in black t-shirts. We never reverse. See me always pressing forward. The price was feeling low, but now we're heading northward. We glow up, never slow up. See me throw down in a roll up. We turn the soul up and you know us. A funky little beat is the only place I'll blow up. And every day's a gift, so you know we always show up. Galaxy Brains. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We have a great show. We're talking with Christine Kim from Galaxy Research about a whole host of things. She's back from a little hiatus from the show to tell us about Ethereum upgrades um, and the adoption of MEV Boost on Ethereum, which is a really interesting uh, story in the ecosystem. And we're going to talk with her about a whole bunch of other interesting news topics that have happened. Uh, the FBI in North Korea, um, some regulatory stuff, Jamie Dimon's comments about uh, Bitcoin at the World Economic Forum. And we're going to talk, of course, as always, with our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading about markets and macro. But before we begin, I need to tell you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer on the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or a recommendation offer or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Let's get right into the show. Welcome, my friend, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. As always, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. It's good to see you. Um, it's a little bit of a quiet week, I guess. Oh, I mean, after... After last week, certainly in crypto, which was a, a material uplift in, in prices, now we're sort of sideways at these levels. Um, viewers of our YouTube uh, channel, which we are on video, if you only listen on audio, worth checking us out on video, you know, occasionally. I've always thought I've had a face for podcasts. <laughs> not, not... Uh, viewers will see the block clock next to me, which shows that right. we're at about 22.6 on Bitcoin. So we're still up where we were, but a little quiet. Um, anything you're paying attention to in particular this week? Um. Yeah, a couple of things um, with respect to crypto. Uh, one of the things is is um, CME activity. Um, so we've seen a pretty material jump in open interest on CME, uh, Bitcoin, and I think ETH futures as well. Um, and I think that's a sign of, of growing sort of institutional adoption. Um, in addition, uh, it's it's a sign that, you know, folks are still not comfortable with credit risk in the space, right? People want to buy Bitcoin without t facing uh, counterparty risk or without having counterparty risk. And obviously the CME is is a gold standard. Yeah. Um, and so one, um, you know, I, I think the growing importance of CME futures tells you that, um, you know, this asset class has a place in, in institutional portfolios. In yep. addition, the guys that have been uh, buying the stuff on, on CME, um, they've been paying a premium to spot, right? And so... That you know, shows that, demand. That shows pretty strong demand. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's been super notable. Interesting. Um, I also have been paying attention to um, gold in traditional markets. Um, it's basically at trend highs, yeah. trading around 1935. And um, I think, you know, that's partially a function of like strong seasonals and like weak dollar, et cetera. Um, but if we're to, to view uh, Bitcoin as something that's similar to, to digital gold, um, I think, you know, that kind of price action in, in physical gold bodes very well uh, for, for, for Bitcoin. And I think if you get a break above 2000 on, on gold, um, there's going to be a lot of folks that are going to be like, 
oh, should I miss this? Or is this a big breakout? Should I be buying gold? Should I be buying gold? And, yeah. and then the, the natural question, like, do I buy gold or do I buy digital gold? And so, you know, I definitely think that that's a powerful narrative that a lot of folks aren't necessarily um, paying attention to. Yeah, you love that Bitcoin gold chart. I love that that chart. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, it bottomed kind of where you'd expect it to. Um, It's now trading at around a ratio of like 11. um, And it's got plenty of room to go higher. And so personally, I love um, being short gold versus long Bitcoin. I think that gives you a, a really nice risk profile. It looks really good on on the chart. Um, and it's got a good story to it. Yeah, it does. It's an um, interesting long term Bitcoin narrative as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and then in terms of other things we're paying attention to, I think more than ever, it's really important to um, be honest about the data that you that that's coming in from the market. Right, the market's kind of gotten ahead of itself with respect to like inflation expectations that have come down a lot, bond yields that have moved a, a lot lower, et cetera. And so I'm very focused on data points that suggest that we're going back the other way in terms of inflation or like activity. So there have been a couple of surprises to the upside recently, not that the market is paying attention, um, but like the NAHB home builder survey came out a little stronger than expected. We had U.S. services and uh, U.S. manufacturing PMIs come in stronger than expected yesterday. Uh, you also had a drop in initial jobless claims. So there's, there's like, you know, in the past week or so, you've had pretty strong. So these like, are like uh, potentially inflationary. Potentially inflationary yeah. or like you know, higher for longer suggestive things. And I think fundamentally, like I'm looking at bonds and and I'm like, these things are not pricing in inflation risk. It's almost like you took away that inflation risk. And like, guys, like we have one of the tightest labor markets in history. Right. Stocks are fine. Consumer sentiment is fine. People are getting raises like crazy. I mean, Walmart raises, fucking Social Security, sorry, <laughs> Social Security raises that that went effect right. uh, at the start they're of the infl- year. That was sixty million people yeah. that get those, those those cost of living adjustments. Um, and you have China reopening. It, it's not right. It, Europe isn't going to go through one of the worst winters or recessions in history. Things are starting to look good there, right? So there's, uh, and God forbid, the commodities start ripping again. And so I think the market is totally underappreciating um, inflation risks. And I think that's a function of, or lo- a, a huge part of it is, is just how much cash was created over the past, you know, handful of years. It's like, okay, bond yields are really depressed because we printed like five trillion dollars of, of money, and so maybe, like, they're not reflecting the true right. like risks because they need to, it needs to find a home, etc. And so there's a lot of like neat, interesting things going on. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I'm paying attention to on the macro side. On the micro, like more crypto-focused side of things, I mean, you've just had some, such insane moves in a handful of these alts. I know, I know. Uh, it's one in particular that makes no sense to me uh, is, is, is Aptos. Right now, is that it, even a thing yet? It nope, is, not a thing. It doesn't. Has it launched? I mean, the, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I, I honestly, I, I don't I, know anybody that's an actual user right. of Aptos. I don't know right. what wallet like you would need. Um, I, I, I think, think there's only a handful of developers and, that code in and that whatever language. Whatever coins are in the market right now, it's got to be extremely illiquid. If it's, there are the any, the float at all. is is very limited. Yeah, but right now, fully diluted, the thing's worth seventeen billion dollars, which is just crazy. And I can't tell you a single person that uses it. It doesn't have a stable <laughs> coin. It, there's not that many developers. 
developers on it. Yeah. Like my question is, has this market not learned its lesson? Yeah. Like what is going on that you know we have a token that's appreciated two hundred. It's got to be a reversion. Re- there. It should revert, but. You know, Milton Friedman has a great saying, the market can stay solvent longer than, uh, sorry, the, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And right. that's that's really like what constantly comes to mind in crypto. <laughs> well, irrational markets. I love that. Absolutely. Um, hey, so the Fed uh, comes out next week mm-hmm. uh, with uh, their FOMC meeting happens next week, I should say. Correct. Right? With their rate decision. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, and, and along with what you were saying about the market kind of under uh, under appreciating the inflation risk, right? I mean, the market's also currently pricing like less than five percent terminal rate here, right? Yeah, is that around four hundred and ninety three basis points so terminal rates. You have uh, twenty around twenty five basis points priced for for this meeting, and a little less than twenty five priced for for the next. And what we did fifty. Last, last meeting. Last meeting. Yeah. So like the market is expecting a further decline of the hike. You know, magnitude. Pace. Yeah, absolutely. You think if you had to guess, I mean, is was that going to happen? I mean, wouldn't it? Don't you think part of what uh, you know Powell and the Fed governors want is to really tamp this thing down? I've heard some recently hawkish statements from some Fed members, right? I mean, all the Fed speak has been hawkish. Yeah, Most, so like, yeah, wouldn't a, wouldn't an upside surprise here help them with their narrative to get the market like in line here to make sure? Because as you've said multiple times, the worst case scenario is that they. Slow the magnitude and and yeah. you know sort of become a little bit more dovish, and then inflation rears its head again, and they have to like go right back. Yeah, that's no, what happened I in mean, the '70s a bunch. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, I think the the Fed this year or over the past year um, has been very um, intelligent about how they've they've used like the the meeting to push markets, and so typically, like when you want the the greatest bang for your buck you surprise the market right right and so like going doing a lot and surprising the market gets you a better impact than like communicating it and doing it gradually um and so the fed was very effect like effective this year over the past year of of like over delivering and like being more hawkish now at this point though you've had you know three consecutive inflation prints that have come down mm-hmm. uh clearly like it looks like you you've topped out um, and you know some of the manufacturing surveys have, have really moved a, a lot lower. So the data backdrop is one that um, allows the Fed to just kind of do the 25 and communicate probably another 25 down the line and with potential for more. Um, and that'll kind of leave things as is, right? You're meeting expectations. Um, and so the, like the, the the point is like I don't think there's really that much of an incentive for them to like surprise and shock the market given that the data profile has got it softened. Which so really they're starting to see the data they would want to see. They they are. Yeah. They are. And and they've gotten a lot smarter in the sense that um you know why they missed it was because they weren't you well, why they missed inflation, you know, really taking off was because they weren't using some of the anecdotal anecdotal data or some of the soft data as as heavily um, or the high frequency things as as heavily, and now like they've come out with like a new rent index that they're using. They'll yep. look at like more active data series, um, and they'll rely more on on like soft data and anecdotal data. And so they're they're a lot more progressive, um, and they see the writing on the wall, which is rents are starting to cool, right? Like you've used auto prices have come down, home prices have come down. Like there's a lot of things that suggest that prices are, are cooling. 
Um, and so there's really not a need for them to surprise, you know, I think. Interesting. All right. Our friend, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. Pleasure. Great to see you as always, my friend. Let's go to our friend, Christine Kim. Welcome back. I haven't seen you on Galaxy Brains in maybe like a month and a half. How are I you? Oh, it's crazy. Thanks for having me back. As um, always. Yeah. Well, I mean, I see you around in the office every day, so it's <laughs> funny, like, being back on the podcast, but, like, you know. But there were the holidays, um, and then we had true. a bunch of guests on at the end of the year. So yes. We didn't, um, and, um, but I'm really excited because we've got a bunch of fun topics to talk about. I think we're going to start with Ethereum, um, as is probably no surprise to our guests. I think what one of the biggest things in Ethereum's roadmap or, you know, the things to watch in Ethereum is is Shanghai, the next upgrade, um, which is going to bring state ETH withdrawals. What's the current update on, on this upgrade, Shanghai? Well, mainly that Shanghai, the the only thing really going into Shanghai is state ETH withdrawals. There was so much discussion before the end of the year of like, okay, can we include um, scalability upgrades on this? Can we include EVM upgrades in Shanghai? And really like, when all the developers were back from vacation, like the holiday break, they um, all came to consensus around we're really going to make Shanghai as small as, pro- as possible, which is why right now in recent weeks, testing for the upgrade has really um, been fast-tracked because there's not too much to test. The other EIPs outside of state youth withdrawals that's going into Shanghai are really minor ones. Right. Um, and that won't have, you know, a ton of impact on like the end user or like the infrastructure, like the of the network itself. Um, so yeah, they they recently, like this week, I believe, launched their first mainnet shadow fork for Shanghai, which basically means that they replicated the state of Ethereum today and then tested out like the That's Shanghai smart upgrade. Too. Instead of not so not just a test net, but no. literally like a test net with the state up to like literally all the apps, all the all the transaction history, all the smart contracts. Yeah, that's that's nice. That's... So I think we're close. I think that target of March for Shanghai is looking very likely, which wow. is surprising to me because I had thought after the merge, you know, we're going to see delays. In well, I mean, it was one of the, like a few constants in life. You got death, you got taxes and you got delays to Ethereum upgrades. Exactly. Right? But um that's really impressive, um, first of all. And, you know, we talked, I think, on a prior episode about how um, the pressure on the developers to actually just really get staked ETH withdrawals, to really prioritize that because um, of criticism that they've been facing um, and also just demands from users and how how other developers with sort of more substantive um, or I should say more innovative um, upgrades um, were upset by this because, you know, they want to like actually build, you know, features and not just sort of like, but I, I think this is the right move. I think you you need to sort of actually finish the merge. Right. Um, and then move on to these other things. That's just my opinion. But um, yeah. I'm, but very bullish on on them moving quickly though. Yeah. I mean it really affirms that developers don't work in this black box setting where they're only thinking about what's the best for the network. Like they they really are subject and and kind of like like impacted by what's happening on Twitter, you know, the it's, conversation yeah. that's happening on social media. It's really an interesting discussion. It's probably a bigger one than we would have today, but just on in, in how the layer ones, particularly Bitcoin and Ethereum, are governed, quote unquote, yeah. right? Because, you know, there's no like, you know, you're not voting like officially, right? And it's, these are people, the, the developers. Um, there are checks and balances. We've talked, I talk a lot about in Bitcoin, how even if the develop, theoretically with the Ethereum developers could put out an upgrade and no one could run it. That's in practice never happened. Right. Um, on Bitcoin, it's happened plenty. Right. Um, but like 
what's the process for deciding? It's these calls that you listen to and that all the devs go to and they sort of just achieve, arrive at a consensus, basically. Yeah, That's yeah. That's the idea? Well, the governance process is is not defined well. It's not like an on-chain voting process where you go through step one, step two. There's like a rough process for Ethereum improvement proposals, right. conversations just like on. like BIPs on Bitcoin, yeah. yeah. There should be one. It should be developed widely. It should be shared and tested widely. Right. And then it should receive sort of what, a majority or super majority of consensus that it's safe and good. Right. But it depends so much on the culture too, like the culture around these conversations on Ethereum is so much more accepted than on Bitcoin. Like if you tried to right. start up a conversation about how to change like Bitcoin for the better, you there's no chance. Oh, that, well, you're you know, met your with immediate skepticism, yeah. right? And and this happens a lot. And I, I think that's okay. I mean, I think that the two different approaches are, are nice. So you have two different bets on how and what the roadmap should be, what the style should be, what the culture should be. Um, I think if they're of the same, it makes both of them less interesting, but you're totally right, totally different. Um, but I, I, I do think um, it's still an interesting question. It's, it's actually not even a public blockchain layer one governance question alone. It's an open source software development right. question, how yeah. these things are, you know, consensus is, is derived to, to, well, you can always fork it. That's what everyone says. You can just fork it. If you want something different that they don't want, you just create your own fork. Uh, on Ethereum, it's hard to fork because the applications don't move with you, whereas on Bitcoin, I, I think there's not a ton to like. No, but I mean, even just uh, that's over. true. There's the there's questions about the forkability of ETH, but to be clear, you literally can fork it. Yes, you can. Whether it's going to be successful, very different question. But um, in general, in open source software, I mean, we can just go to like the Ethereum repository and literally hit fork on GitHub and create our own version of it. If no one uses it, or you know, the stablecoin values do not get honored on my fork, so surely not. There's reasons why it, it is fork resistant at this point. Yeah. Um, but in general, that's what you would do if you had a big, you look at something like um, like OpenOffice, which is like sort of a Microsoft Word alternative open source one. Yeah. It's been forked like a hundred times. There's like a bunch of different versions of it. Just Libra like, is great. LibreOffice I mean, Libra is, is a fork of, of it, right? So. But to yeah. that point, I recently read a really great um, post about how because all of the clients on Ethereum, like all the technology is open source. The reason why you got layer two rollups that are so compatible with Ethereum and you got things like MEV Geth, which was built by Flashbots, like all of these products that are now so key to like the Ethereum development roadmap, they were all started by the community because the code was so easy to just replicate. Like the right. EVM itself, you could build off of Geth, you could build off of right. these clients. I think a lot of us agree, um, certainly that work in this ecosystem, that open source is better for innovation. It just is for that reason. Um, let's talk about MEV Boost, um, which I, you've got a report coming out soon on. Um, remind our audience, first of all, what this is, but then, you know, what's the adoption has been growing. Tell us why. Yeah, MEV Boost is kind of this middleware software that validators run on top of their usual execution layer, consensus layer client, um, and it allows validators to receive blocks built by third parties. Um, you know, validators are usually the ones that are packaging transactions into blocks and proposing to them onto the network. Um, but because you don't want validators to become extremely specialized and, and kind of make a business off of profiting from user transactions, ordering them in specific ways to extract MEV, um, you just kind of give them a really easy way to run MEV Boost, which is the software that allows you to connect to off-chain marketplaces, where highly specialized entities called builders are sending 
pre-made blocks that already have MEV on them and um, bribing validators to include them on chain. So that's MEV boost. Why don't you want validators doing this themselves? Explain that to me. Why is it better to separate and have these specialized um, searchers and whatnot? Block it's, builders, like what, what's the whole reasoning behind that? It really comes down to the decentralization of the network. One of the supposed advantages of proof of stake is that all of your security providers, all of your block proposers are not these large mining like institutions. Like you don't need to have a ton of capital to contribute to the security of the network. As a validator, you should be able to run your operation super low cost. It should Everyone should technically be able to be a validator. It just increases your pool of people who can participate in the consensus of the network significantly. But if you had the specialization of, you know, MEV profits, like by taking out MEV boost, just allowing validators to to compete for MEV profits directly, then you would start to see like a significant amount of centralization, which is what Ethereum developers want to avoid. I see. So keep it simple to run a validator and yes. to the extent that there's complexity and specialized knowledge required to do things like what identify like sandwichable transactions or other front running, back running things that happen in MEV, just sort of separate that from the validation part. Exactly. You don't want the consensus the, the, people the actual directly, network consensus. Yeah. yeah, the people involved in creating that consensus to become centralized to like a few entities. And that's because what MEV is hard, right? It's a complicated process. Not everyone can be good at it. So you would you would essentially have a reduction of the regular folks that would be validating because um, they'd be dominated by the MEV people, basically. Is that the idea? Right, right. And I think the con the concern, though, with MEV Boost is that you're not getting rid of the specialization. You're not getting rid you're of the problem. Yeah, you're just moving it and offloading it to a different part of like the MEV supply chain. Right, and like chain. now that could become centralized. Right? And that is kind of what we are seeing. I mean, it's still very early days on the network, and I think we're going to see a significant amount more of, of builder centralization once we start to see DeFi activity heating up. Um, but one of the, the interesting things that I wanted to highlight were, was that some of the best builders on Ethereum today, and by the way, like 90% of blocks are now built by third-party builders. So you're not getting so like... So that's MEV boost adoption, basically. 90%. Wow. Um, and we're now seeing that the best builders are not actually these big venture-backed companies. Like Flashbots is not one of the top builders in the past seven days. Um, neither is Bloxroute. Neither is Block Native. Um, neither are these like well-known kind of. We know how they're getting their revenue. We know their business models. We know they are VC-backed. Um, it's actually these two pseudonymous builders, Beaver Build and Builder OX69. And OX69 <laughs> has publicly said that they were previously a mining pool operator. Um, that That's interesting. That is dominating the builder market right wow. now. And their share is growing. And I'm concerned about how exactly they're getting their funding because certain builders are also subsidizing their blocks. Like even though their blocks are, you know, more – there's a higher bid on them than there is an MEV revenue, so so they're making a loss. Mm -hmm. um, if they're subsidizing their blocks, I'm wondering if it's like to try and dominate the market early on, and then like wash out all your competitors so that you can you know get a leg up. Well, if they, if I don't want, if uh, uh, you said OX69, if yeah. they were a mining pool operator, they could have a lot of ETH. I mean, they could just be 
depocketed. It's actually a really interesting transition. We were all saying what happens to the to the Ethereum miners, not just the the ones with the machines, but the mining pools, right? I mean, there was um, um, who was the big miner? Ethermine. Eth Ethermine, right? I mean, they were supportive, right, of the merge. Yeah. And and some others were, and you kind of were like, why? Yeah. Wouldn't that like ruin your business? And it's like, well, they're not really the ones with the machines in the data centers. They're basically block builders, right? The miners, the the pools, like the in pools. Bitcoin, they create the block templates and, yeah. and order the transactions. And the pools were and the And that job ones. still exists. It does. So and the, the pools were the entities before the merge that were packaging bundles from searchers. Right. So they're... So it makes sense to me that, of course, Builder OX69, if they were a mining pool operator, would be one of the best builders out there. But are the proceeds, are the revenues from MEV right now really all that lucrative when DeFi activity is still low? And, low? Yeah. and on top of that, Builder OX69 is also operating their own relay infrastructure. And relay infrastructure is not cheap if you want it to be a performant relay. And so I'm questioning... The if, strategy here. Yeah, if the top builders are not these companies that— and they're not profitable. This guy, you said he can't be profitable at this level, you don't think? Well, I know that Builder person, 69 is subsidizing some of their blocks. Yeah. Um, and what does that mean? Throwing in additional like incentive for, valid, for MEV Boost users to take those blocks? I think what it means is that the block itself has a value, right? Like you sum up all the, f the rewards from MEV, from priority fees. Issuance, whatever, yeah. Not issuance, because that goes to the validator. But for the builder, you just sum up the value of I the see. block, and then you compare it to the bid of the block. Like, how much are they bribing validators on that off-chain marketplace? Like oh, the I see. They're paying more than the total value of exactly. the block. Exactly. And so then you can see that, so oh, like, this block is Of course you would take that, by the way. Of course, if you're a validator or whatever. And, the, and it's I mean, very competitive. Of course you take that block. But not all builders are doing this. I believe Beaver Build isn't subsidizing their blocks. Um, but, but again, it just makes me wonder. Yeah, well, it, what is the longer-term dynamic here, yeah. right? Um, you, you have to assume that that can't go on forever. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, so, are, what, what else on MEV Boost have you been watching? Anything else that we should be paying attention to? Um, I guess one little thing is that um, over the last, I guess even before the holiday break, we have seen an increase in the number of um, relays, basically those marketplaces where builders are submitting their bids, connecting to validators, um, an increase in the number of non-censoring relays, like relays that do that are um, agnostic. They apply that, no filtering to the transactions that get put into blocks. Yes, but I will say the more that I look into kind of what it takes to be a relay operator, the less I'm confident that these relays that are kind of seen as public goods. They're not um, competitive in terms of their performance. I don't see them, you know, really taking off in terms of adoption. I think you do need to invest capital and resources to make your relay performant that um, isn't conducive to just like having these, th these relays that uh, people just kind of um, operate out of goodwill and then have them also like be able to compete with other relays that um, are clearly just far more well-resourced for other reasons. Very interesting. MEV is not going away. Um, it's going to be a big story, certainly for Ethereum, but perhaps other blockchains. It already is a little bit, although nowhere as important as Ethereum today. Yeah. Mostly because there's not activity at Ethereum's level basically anywhere else um, in the scheme of things when it comes to, like, MEV-able is that a word? Amiable? It's not. Activities. It's, not <laughs> it's really not. I right. mean, but yeah, yeah. Let's I talk about a couple other things um, outside of sort of the Ethereum specific world. Just some news items that we thought were interesting. One, um, I guess you pointed this out to me. The FBI confirmed that the one hundred million dollar hack of the Horizon Bridge uh, was 
uh, conducted by North Korea's Lazarus Group, group the infamous uh, state-sponsored hacker organization. Yes. Um, I guess this is something we I feel like we already knew. I think crypto native uh, analysis firms yeah. had already pegged them as the the um, the culprit, but I guess the FBI is now agreeing, confirming that. Um, what was that quote? Uh, One interesting thing that they also included in their confirmation of what these crypto blockchain analytic firms like Chainalysis and Elliptic have already said before is that the DPRK uses funds it acquires from crypto hacks to fund its ballistic missiles and weapons of mass destruction programs, the FBI said. Good Lord. So literally North Korea, we're being told by the FBI, is funding their ICBM program with stolen, like, cryptos? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, I don't know what else they'd be using it for. I mean, I, shouldn't they be using it, I mean, for something more constructive, you know, like feeding their people or like something, but... Well, just... <laughs> you would think, but I I don't think this is a great look for crypto. I mean, it's not. I mean, every I... single time people say that crypto is used for illicit activity, activities, imagine now saying that crypto is used it's to fund good. nuclear weapons programs in North Korea. And and to be clear, like we're just sort of like laughing about this because I think this is the first time we've seen that language specifically from the U.S. government. But Tornado Cash, I mean, one of the big. Um, justifications for sanctioning and adding Tornado Cash to the SDN list, OFAC's SDN list, supposedly was it was widely used by the Lazarus Group specifically, right? right? So it's never been a good look with that North Korean uh, or other, you know, bad actors um, are profiting from crypto theft, obviously. Um, That's never been a good look. But I think this is the first time that they've said it literally is funding their ICBM program. I'm interested to know whether they actually know that's true or whether it's like, well, of course, all the stolen stuff is how they're funding their bad stuff. Like, do like they where actu- could it be going? Saying, like, do they actually know this? that like the stolen cryptos went to some like fiat off ramp where they then bought like components for the R- the new the ICBM program, or are they just being like obviously they're being used for that? Yeah. Not saying it would be unlikely to be true. I'm just wondering like, and we'll probably never. This is probably yeah. FBI's internal sources and methods, but um, interested to actually know: Do we actually actually know that, or? Is it just a solid reasoning? And I think it is probably solid reasoning, unfortunately. But I feel like it was kind of something every time you hear that North Korean hackers were involved, you just kind of immediately assume it's You're not like, going to be used for something good, <laughs> like yeah. something oh, like let's yeah, definitely help like world poverty. I, or I will like point that. out the um, that the uh, Chainalysis companies, I think Chainalysis specifically have have noted though that despite you know, say a bad headline like this and the large number of hacks, which were mostly bridges. Yeah. Um, like this one. Um, still like crime, illicit activity usage of public blockchains was at the smallest percentage last year of any year mm. of the total value of all transactions. So I think really? well under 1% of, of transactions by their calculation involved illicit activity. Um, so despite some of the bad headlines, I would say it's still – a moving in the right direction, um, and you know the classic argument is the uh, the sort of what aboutism. Uh, well, you know, so like you know the dollars are used for a lot of crime what too, about folks. Fine art. What, no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, all right, let's let's move on. I got another one that's kind of um, uh, uh, interesting. Um, oh yeah, so so the New York Department of Financial Services put out a bulletin. Yes. Um, uh, adding further guidance to their regulated entities um, about not co-mingling uh, user and proprietary funds. Uh, can you, what, what was that exactly? Yeah. You... So revelations that FTX misused customer money has made obviously lawmakers and regulators in the U.S. Um, 
a lot more attentive to what's going on in the crypto space. And recently, um, Adrian Harris, who heads the um, NYDFS, um, has warned that you know, crypto firms should be reminded of the licensees that are required to be practicing mm-hmm. and um, has issued guidance um, on sub-custody arrangements and disclosures, appropriate disclosures to their uh, customers. Um, and this is kind of interesting because right around this time when the NYDFS put out this guidance, Binance also said that they had been um, using the same wallet for uh, customer funds as the wallet um, with the assets that are supposed to be backing Binance pegged tokens. Got it. So like this kind of, I guess there was like some mix up on where, which wallets were being used um, to deposit customer funds and then which wallet is being used to back the like the value of these of these Binance peg yeah. tokens. Yeah, and this is Binance International, obviously, like the big Binance. The big no. Binance. Yeah. And, and Binance did acknowledge this, said that they were, you know, rewriting the situation, moving funds it. out. Yeah. Um, but it does kind of show that, like, not only do our regulators, like, thinking more deeply and, like, issuing guidance around this, but also, like, yeah. crypto companies are just self like, – they're far more aware about, like – these things leaking and on-chain activity being more transparent and people being like far more nervous about this kind of of commingling of of customer funds, um, and so it was interesting to see those two happening kind of around the same time. Um, I don't think there was like too much lashback on the on the Binance thing, even though I don't know. I think as long as they you know have the assets, yeah. I think. But I agree. It, it seems like um, there's going to be a push, particularly given the nature of the FTX Alameda thing as as most of us know it and of and of the allegations made by regulators and law enforcement against Sam Bankman Freed that yeah. the commingling of user assets with proprietary funds or yeah. corporate funds um first of all it's a bad thing it's a bad thing in finance generally um but that that shouldn't happen and it sounds like the the guidance from DFS is also includes stuff about that i think we'll hear more about that binance saying the same thing like you know that these assets really should be kept separately yeah um and they're really and i know like i think most of the like professional crypto custodians they're they they are i think they already do this and they that that was how a lot of them were set up specifically with that in mind so um but but exchanges though right not sure Um, i think most of them probably do this already but i think this is something a clear takeaway from ftx is that you know Alameda shouldn't be able to just like access customer funds. Right? You know what? That shouldn't be possible. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. But you know what hasn't been kind of a clear takeaway and a change and a transition from this conversation is the proof of reserves. That whole conversation has died out completely. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's going to die out completely, but I agree there's been it has receded a little bit. Um, and I, I hope that we'll still get more movement on it. In, in fairness, a lot of the exchanges did do something on it in, over the last couple months. Um, but you're right. The drumbeat has kind of receded a little bit. I'm hoping that won't be the case. Um, I think there's good reason. Um, and and look, we've talked about proof reserves a fair amount on this podcast. But yep. there's there's criticisms people levy that, like, you know, the um, you know negative account values or proof of liabilities. Oh, my gosh. Like, that's the hard part. Difficulty and, around auditing. Like yeah, who to audit hire, firms who wanting to, to actually do these audits. The reality is like any step in the right direction here is an improvement. Um, and and there are ways to get all the way there. Um, but even if we don't, like, you know, when it comes to assets, liabilities, 
the quality of the audit, the to whom it is reported, the the cadence of it, frequency of it, et cetera. There's plenty of variables here that make something um, an okay proof of reserves or a really good one. Yeah. But in my mind, any movement towards this is an improvement. And yeah. So I think we actually have improved a lot since prior to FTX across a lot of venues. Um, we got to keep the pressure up to make sure they keep doing it. And hopefully we can up the quality and propagate some standards on proof of reserves. Yeah. Um, but there are many people skeptical of this, including our friend. Um, uh, we talked about CMS. it, Dan Maciszewski yeah. <laughs> from CMS Holdings. When he was on our podcast, you yeah. recall, he was totally skeptical that this would uh, like remain a big deal, like that people would sort of forget about it like they had in the past because um, there was a big push for proof of reserves after Mt. Gox literally like almost eight years ago. And right. like some did it and then like nobody cared for like four or five years. I hope – you know why – Here's one other than the fact that I think it really can mitigate something like an FTX or even prevent it. Um, I like it because it's something that crypto assets are uniquely capable of providing as a feature. You can mathematically, particularly if they're natively digital, right? Like if they're not like a tokenized, like a stable coin or something else, that's not something you can say for traditional assets. This is actually something where crypto assets, this could become a proof of reserves could become a major use case for crypto assets actually. Um, because it's not something you can do in t with traditional assets. It's a major, we're, you know, Bitcoin and Ether are uniquely suited to actually not only not have an FTX, but prevent, um, do something that can't be prevented in traditional world. Yeah. I think it's an improvement in some cases, like that unique ability to prove it on chain. But for most businesses, yeah, it doesn't really do much if you can't you know, couple it with the liabilities, which of course, and like the audits, which of course is part of proof of reserves already. Right. But that part I think is really difficult to it overcome and, and, and to do in practice, which I think like it's great that we do have like some amount of progress. I just don't know how meaningful it is in the context of like what these businesses do. But I guess I guess I think that, you know, this conversation, like you said, will hopefully um, will hopefully be taken more seriously. I hope so, too. This year. Um, all right. One last item. Uh, World Economic Forum is happening in Davos. Um, right. I guess there's not a lot of crypto being talked about this year compared to prior years. Um, one time, Probably a lot of crypto companies there, though, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> um, one person who was talking about it was Jamie Dimon on Squawk Box. Um, let's roll that clip. What we were talking about, uh, we, we, we pretty much always have some crypto conversation with you. I'm just curious because I don't think we've I, talked to you since. I think all that's been a waste of time. And why you guys waste any breath on it is totally beyond me. Because you just think the whole thing just is, is going to zero, going to zero and it's fake. It, it, Bitcoin itself is a, is a hyped up fraud. It's a pet rock. You're back to that? Yeah, really? Of course. Yeah. So what do you make then of, of BlackRock and other firms that are, are investing in infrastructure? No, that, and other... that, that's different. Blockchain is a, is a technology ledger system right. that we use to move information. We've used it to do overnight repo, intraday right. repo. We've used it to, we're going to use it, we've used it to move money. Right. So that is a ledger. That's a technology ledger type of thing that it, we think will be deployable. Bitcoin's remember, we've been, based on remember we've been talking about that ledger, for 12 right. years, too, and very little has been done. There's some so. tokens that, that I agree with you on, but, but Bitcoin's based on a distributed ledger. It has all the characteristics of, of a store of value. It, I, it's immutable. It, it's scarce. 
Uh, it, totally untrue. It's it, 21 million. It, well, yeah, really. How do you know it's going to stop at 21 million? Because it's, I've mentioned it's, this to people. Satoshi, too. It's, it's, Everyone it's, says it's, that. Well, maybe it's going to get to 21 million, and Satoshi's picture is going to come up and laugh at you all. Say, no, no. There isn't a picture. And by, and by then, Satoshi will take it out billions of dollars. What, what was your reaction to the failure of FTX? I think we'll stop it there. Um, Gosh, just a couple things here. First of all, the reason people give any time to it, Mr. Diamond, is because Ethereum and Bitcoin are basically the two best performing assets in the world across asset class since COVID lows. Um, And by the way, if we go back even further, it only looks better for them um, on a total return basis. Um, So that's why they, quote, waste breath on it, Jamie, because... Pop off. Yeah. Pop off, Alex. Go, go. (laughs) Because they um, perform so well, and you run an investment bank, sir, so... Um, you know, investment returns matter. But also, um, you know, they said, uh, I think the Squawk Box host, they asked, uh, well, well, then why is BlackRock on stuff doing? And he's like, no, 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 that's different. That's blockchain and distributed ledger. No, no, sir. Excuse me. Fidelity and BlackRock and many others, they're building on public blockchains. Fidelity has crypto asset services, not just blockchain technology, distributed ledger, uh, Mr. Diamond. They are building with Bitcoin and ETH. Um, so it's not just like, oh, DLT, you know, blockchain, not Bitcoin, that thing from, you know, seven years ago is re- rearing its head again. Don't get me wrong. Like I- I've said this many times, blockchain technology by itself, enterprise blockchain. I'm not putting the nail in the coffin just yet. But, you know, they didn't ask him to disavow, you know, Fidelity. Right. Because that that's Fidelity's primarily a custodian for crypto assets today. Right. Not for they're not building a supply chain system. Right? And. Also, the 21 million, how do we know that Bitcoin is going to stop at 21 million? Literally, miners, like the whole code, it's literally if you looked at the code that operates Bitcoin, if you just evaluated exactly how Bitcoin works, that's completely transparent. There are thousands, if not millions of people around the world that are operating this code that see that this is the way that the code works like yeah. it's not it's not some some company that where you don't know like the operations of how that company is working right. there is no secret like document or like <laughs> secret way secret in which, picture of satoshi's face in which you couldn't know exactly how the network is operating right you know that's like a completely it's literally completely transparent that's the other reason why i hate how can it be a fraud guys it's a hyped up fraud how can literally open source code that just does a thing be a fraud. It's impossible to be a fraud. There's no, I mean, Bitcoin more than any of the other cryptos is is anything but a fraud. It's like the most transparent, predictable thing, I think, in in money, in finance. And now, probably the most unchanging too. Yeah. I mean, whether you think that it should be worth what it's worth, that's a totally different question. Right. And and you know, I, I we hear Mr. Diamond's view on that. I mean, that's fine. Um, I think, again, if we look at the total returns or the volatility of just returns, I think he would find that he's not right about its value. But um, it's just it can't be a fraud if it's literally just code that people chose to run. It's valuable because the people who run it value it. And and by the way, um, just to, for our, our audience, Bitcoin will actually never reach 21 million. So even if there was a Satoshi's face that would come up at 21 million, there actually never will be a supply of 21 million. Um, and it, how do we know It that? actually approaches <laughs> 21 but never actually gets there. Um, and we know that because of the mathematics. Um, one last thing. Now, if Bitcoin's supply total terminal supply were to change which is possible it wouldn't be because of some secret thing satoshi left in the code 
It because would be, we would be able to see that. Yes. We would be able we to notice right that. <laughs> Literally everyone in the world would be if able to see that. If the total terminal supply, max supply were to change, it would be solely due to overwhelming social consensus by people who run Bitcoin software deciding to change it. Now, that technically is possible. And we've talked about the reasons why potentially it might happen sure. and the discussions and debates around that. But clearly, this is not where he's going. I feel going. like this is where a little – we might be a little bit more deeply uh, into this question right. and have thought about it a little bit more deeply than – uh, Mr. Diamond, I hope he'll um, reconsider and think a little more deeply about it going forward. Um, that's, that's fun conversation. Oh that's a great gosh. clip, and and you got to give it to uh, um, the Squawk Box hosts really pushing back on him. Yeah, because um, they they do cover it. And by the way, like, can we just even if you don't like believe in Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or crypto broadly, like another reason to quote unquote waste breath on it is it's objectively like the most interesting thing in my opinion to happen to finance and monetary systems yeah. um in decades i mean it's just super interesting it's like what if you had um you know the the developers that created the tech industry theoretically um able to now experiment with money and finance i mean that's open sourcing of this historically incredibly closed source thing finance but not just that sovereign only thing money um is yielding super interesting experiments, and that's why people talk about it a lot, even if they don't like it. Truth, truth. None of that has changed in 2023. And no. those are like some of the fundamental and core values of why so many people are still here today. Yeah. Great conversation. Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. Thank you so much, my friend. Thanks, Alex. That's all for Galaxy Brains this week. Thank you so much for tuning in, as always. Just a reminder, if you listen only on uh, audio, which, to be honest, I mostly do, you should check us out on YouTube because we've been uh, recording these live in studio with video. High-quality video, I must say. Shout-out to our production team uh, every week. So um, check that out for fun. And um, that's all we've got. You were a great audience, guys. You really you did a great job. <laughs> um, uh, really, truly, thank you so much, and have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.